Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining us today. If you listen to NPR News in the afternoon, you have probably heard All Things Considered host Tom Cran talking about food and restaurants with Dara Moskowitz-Grumdahl. Dara is a nationally respected food writer. She's a six-time winner of the James Beard Awards, the Oscar of the food world. Her food writing has been published in USA Today, Food and Wine, Gourmet, Bon Appetit, and many other outlets. And this morning, you're in for a treat because we're going to listen to a conversation Tom had with Dara last week. In this conversation, Tom talks to Dara about her new book, The Essential Dear Dara, Writings on Local Characters and Memorable Places. They also dive into Dara's writing, the many people she's interviewed throughout her career, and Minnesota's culinary scene. Here's Dara's conversation with Tom Cran. One of the first times we talked on the radio, it was about wine. Your book, Drink This. Was it really? It was, I think, because I was filling in at 9 a.m. Huh. It was many years ago. I went back and I looked, and I think it was 2010. So that's almost, that's 13 and a half years ago. But we may have talked before that, but we did talk about wine. And I remember asking you, why is wine such an important beverage? And the answer you gave just off the top of your head astounded me, but it included the phrase cumulative cultural wisdom. And I said, wow, this is, this is a guest I want on the radio a lot more. So in the book, you say you make them laugh, you make them cry, you make them think. Sometimes I would say some of these uh, profiles, articles – uh, have maybe done all three, and maybe do all three. That's so, what I'm trying to do. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about here. Uh, and and I want to go back first to the process of, we talked uh, months ago, maybe it was six months uh, or so ago, and you mentioned this project, and you said I, you had to go through 25 years worth of writing and articles. And some of them, you said you, you still had the original print you know, from the paper, right, or from yes. the magazine, torn out. Uh, tell us about that process, because if someone said to me, you have to go through all the interviews you've done over 18 years on All Things Considered, I'd find that penitential, <laughs> uh, I, you know. So how did, how'd you do it, and how'd you pick what you're going to put in the book? Well, I am the anti-Marie Kondo. I do not believe <laughs> in decluttering ever, and I just happen to have... Uh, these wicker baskets full of every week. I would just take what I'd written and put it in the basket and, that uh, you know, get on with my life. And then 25 years later, I had many wicker baskets and I just, you know, just sat there going through and going, oh, my God, I wasted my life. Oh, this is the most interesting thing. <laughs> I, you know, I just, uh, like every, uh, you know, every third, uh, every third thing was kind of interesting. And then I you know, put together a, a master, master list. And I don't, a lot of this stuff is completely gone. I mean, so many of publications that I worked for vanished. Don't exist. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, something called Microsoft Sidewalk, you know, yeah. vanished. Uh, uh-huh. Something called City Pages, gone. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, even weirder and more shocking, Gourmet, Vanished. Uh, literally, I think it was the month after I published a story in it. They just ended it. <laughs> I was just like, how yeah. did this? And so um, a lot of these pieces that are in here, I literally retyped. I just sat there and I, you know, from, from, the, the, from the paper that was in my basement. Yes. Wow. <laughs> um, because it's our 
this is like our collective experience. I feel like what I realized about my career when I started going back was like, I am kind, like you all, everybody in the Twin Cities has their family and then they have their friends. And then like, I'm on the next one. Like I'm Pluto, like I'm orbiting your world, but I'm always out there and you just sort of, you kind of get used to me. And I'm just, I'm just here with you taking notes and writing down things. I was like, I think like I'm strangely for a lot of Minnesotans, like I'm their, you know, fourth friend removed who has been taking notes the whole time. And so, uh, you know, then you gotta, you gotta, got to put this on your shelf so that you remember uh what what remember just when things were a long time ago i talked to in this book i found Uh this thing that i completely forgotten about which was an aquitennial queen so this woman who was we know what an aquitennial queen is she was an aquitennial queen during world war ii she was still giving interviews in the 1990s i talked to her for hours she was like nah it wasn't that big a deal all the hot guys were at war i was like (laughs) 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 it's like these are the story we need to have these stories like someone's gotta you've got to remember this and some of them are the length they ran and others, uh, you say, because now you have the space, you could uh, put longer versions of them, original versions of yes, them. Yes, yes, the writer's revenge. Yeah, I, right, right. I went into a bunch of, um, you know, I've I've had, I'm just at that age where, you know, things were being backed up on a hard disk, and then all of a sudden everything was transferred to the cloud. And yeah. so I, it's just been refreshing itself uh, for many years. And I was able to just go into my personal archives and type in various phrases, and bing, bing. up comes the, the first draft from 1999 or, or, you know, 2004. And so then I was, you know, then I was just all in. It was like, oh, I'm going to put in all the stuff that nobody had room for because that was the juicy stuff. <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, and so there's longer versions, a little more complicated, a little more sometimes um, more difficult versions of things are in here mm-hmm. um, because, in fact, difficult things also happen in Minnesota. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and the difficult uh, contexts for things when you were talking about Sean Sherman, uh, the sous chef. But but I want to get to the background and the research because some of these – I'm going to use a phrase. Some of these articles are deceptively uh, in-depth, deceptively detailed in that you get us in – but then you start telling us about the history of the rocks on, you know, on Lake Superior or the uh, whatever it is. Uh, you really have, a, a, I think, a gift for that, and also for not starting with that, but starting in a way we're engaged. And now all of a sudden, I'm I'm learning the you know history of crops or whatever. <laughs> How much research goes into some of these, you know, two thousand, three thousand word pieces? Oh, a lot. You yeah. know, I'll easily spend a month on some of these or or longer. Um, and you'll ca- I'll call people and be like, well, if it if was it an otter or was it <laughs> was it a muskrat? What did I was it a beaver? And then we just have these very interesting conversations. And then um, sometimes the entire conversation will end up on the cutting room floor, as it were. But the the knowledge that you gained will end up in the piece. So, yeah, I mean that's what I love about reading and writing is that you it is the it is the you just get the dense information you know you get yeah, an experience yeah. you get an emotional experience an intellectual experience and it's a it's all there together 
there's one thing you say, and here's the way you put it about the craft of writing. Uh, you say you you absolutely love doing it, even though it is solitary and hard work. And you say it's a form of telepathy. I do think that, yes. Yeah, tell us more about that. How is it telepathy? I don't know why more people don't think this. It's like, you yeah, know, you I, you you pick up Jane Eyre, you start, you know, picking your way along word by word. All of a sudden, she's outside. It's the English mm-hmm. countryside. It's 1840, whatever. Uh, she's looking at the Milky Way. You're right there with her. Like, it's all appeared in your mind. Like, you know, her strivings and her what she sees out the window, like all of it is just right there. And and that to me is a miracle and it is telepathy. And mm-hmm. I love um I love being the, you know, conjurer behind the curtain, just being like, well, you know, let me tell you about yellow sunflowers on a gleaming hill. And like there you are, yeah. you're there with it. I, lo- yeah. I love it. I love it. I think it's magical. I don't know why Everyone in the world is just not astonished all the time. Like, writing! Oh, my God! (laughs) (laughs) You take those images and you plant them in our head whether we want them or not. And that's the the power, right? The telepathic, I guess, uh, power of it. Yeah. Uh, And then there's the word you say you sort of dread, but you need to have... And, and it's a it's a journalistic thing we talk about too. Is it a topic or a story? Oh yeah. You know, let's write something on breakfast. Well, that's a topic, and it's huge. And let's talk. Oh, there's somebody who has a, you know a restaurant against all odds, and all they do is is eggs. Okay, there's a story, right? Uh, and you said you're always searching for the story. So tell us, uh, what are you looking for, and how do you know when you found it? Well, yeah, so that is just, you know, uh, you'll just bash your head against something forever and just be like, well, the North Shore is a topic, but what right. is the what is the story? A story is a thing that is has a beginning and a middle and an end and it brings you surprise and hopefully it brings you something else. It brings you joy, it brings you alarm. It you know, it, it is something um it goes into your emotions and it and it and it makes you feel electric in some way. Um, And so it's the funniest thing because I have devoted my life to stories, finding stories, to telling stories. And in one, you know, in in some ways, like literally I've built my life around this is what I've been doing the whole time. And on the other hand, the, the word story is so ephemeral and we use it for everything it's like oh what's the story here well you buy two cookies you get one free like you know <laughs> it's not a it's not it's not or always a profound the, thing the thing that annoys me is everything's got a backstory backstory and sometimes i think no it's just the story yeah it's just their story i understand backstory has a specific you know narrative device but um it's a story well, and it, but every, stories are powerful. Not only are they powerful, I would argue that they're the basically the only thing we do. It's like, well, is climate change uh, destroying the planet and everybody needs to do something? Like that's one story. Or is climate change, you know, no big deal and just some crazy people? Like that's another story. Like, and you know, it's like, what are we doing in this culture right now? Is if we are pitting one story and one group of storytellers against another story and another group of storytellers and the end of this will be a great change and will define our era. And it's, you know, how is it happening? It happens in storytelling. Mm-hmm. I would like to do a reading about uh, what, what you do and what you write about. And this comes in the, uh, the beginning <laughs> of section two. And the uh, topic yeah. or the headline here is places and edible things, edible in parentheses. So 
These are the these are the deep thoughts. So what are what are places? I know this sounds like the silliest possible question, but I will go on. So places, when it comes to writing, they are not just a spot you drive to on a map. They're the spot you drive to on a map expressed through your particular lens. So if you sent me or Batman or a jellyfish to write about Pipestone, Minnesota, we would each come back with very different stories. And yes, the jellyfishes might be no ocean, I soon died. (laughs) But still, you know, all you can find when you're travel writing is yourself and the things you're interested in. You know, Batman might go to Pipestone six times and never notice the toddler playground or try the sour cream raisin pie at Lang's, unaware of the long history of sour cream raisin pie from back before refrigeration and airplanes made fresh fruit a part of the northern winter. It was, it was, this is true, it was only in looking back at the 25-year arc of my career that I realized I write about nouns, <laughs> of people, places, things, and edible and drinkable things. Uh, but what else is there? There's plenty. The front page of the New York Times is not nouns. It's about what happened yesterday. The opinion page is what I think about recent stuff. Nouns, on the other hand, are a lot less changeable. Therefore, they go after the front page, and people like me can devote some more time thinking about them, and editors can have more time tinkering and thinking too. Temperamentally, I need that additional time. Uh, Temperamentally, that which makes the front page is not well-suited for my talents. I was in the WCCO newsroom once when a long-looked-for child was discovered dead, and merely watching the coverage, I started to weep. And across the newsroom, one of the men who had been on site and interviewed the parents, he was just typing. And I always knew I was the last person who could do that kind of reporting, and that morning proved it. If I had been on the scene, I would have been a problem, an additional problem, and no kind of help, and not remotely able to write down what was happening. And this is because I feel and think deeply. Uh, Sometimes I think of myself as a water glass filled all the way to the absolute top with thoughts and emotion, and any little tremor starts to make the whole thing spill over. And that is a very good way for a noun writer to be, because when I tune in using my particular lens, when I consider a croissant or a glass of wine, I come back with all kinds of big thoughts and feelings, and some of those will be amusing and insightful for my readers. There's this scene I always think about in Catcher in the Rye when Holden Caulfield's awful roommate asks Holden to write a descriptive composition for him to submit in an English class. Holden writes about his brother's baseball glove, his brother who died of leukemia, his brother's baseball glove covered in poems in green ink. His roommate hates it because it's too emotional. That's me, but everyone likes my compositions because they're too emotional. I also select nouns about which I feel emotional. If I taste 30 wines at an event and 29 are meh or fine or technically appropriate, but one reminds me of thunder and makes me feel like a twang has been plucked in my soul like a loose bass guitar string, you know, guess which one gets written about. Uh, Some of the most difficult writing I do is disambiguating similar nouns. Eleven Chardonnays, nine burgers, three river towns, four Metro DJs. 
to manage that, I do what I always do. I pop into the mind of an imaginary reader and try to make them laugh, make them cry, make them think, and never be boring. But at the end of the day, what a Chardonnay, a burger, a Rivertown, or a DJ have in common is only two things. One, they're nouns. Two, they're being described by me in the current moment using my words and my lens. Sometimes people on social media will write posts to the effect that as soon as they read the first line of a story, they knew it was me. Yep, wherever I go, there I am. Me and some nouns. <laughs> Daryl Moskowitz Grumdahl, I would be a person, I think, that if you handed me some unsigned articles, uh, I would be able to pick yours out, I think. Maybe not, you know, it depends on what else was around them, right? But... Uh, what do you think when you hear that, when people say that? Does that mean you have mastered this mysterious voice that everyone is trying to claim in writing? Yes, it makes me really happy. I mean, uh, that's what you're trying to do as a writer. You're trying to say the thing that only you can say in the way that only you can say it. And it's incredibly hard. There's that Malcolm Gladwell thing about, you know, people put in 10,000 hours. Hours of this. for mastery. Yeah, for mastery of, of a subject. And I, I actually got, I only got rejected from writing schools. I tried a number of times when I was in my 20s to get into, like, the Iowa Writers Workshop. They were like, mm-hmm. no, no chance. So I wrote, I wrote for anyone that would have me. I wrote for gardening magazines and bridal magazines and weird online startups. And that's, you know, where a lot of this stuff comes from. And... I wrote, I mean, forget 10,000 hours. If I didn't put in 200,000 hours in my 20s, I would be shocked. (laughs) My back used to go out all the time. The back of a 21-year-old should not go out from typing. (laughs) It's uh, it's ridiculous. Um, And, you know, and I didn't know how to do this. When I was writing at City Pages, I would... I would send these things to this wonderful editor, Monica Bauerlein. She runs Mother Jones. She's a genius. And she would just send everything back, just like, you don't have a transition. You don't have a transition. There's not, can you please already with the transition? <laughs> I would just sit there and just, I was like, how does it work? Why don't words match? Like, how can nothing be good? And just, you know, and I just battled through in this battle royale against my own inadequacy, uh, you know, <laughs> me and my Mac classic. And, uh, you know, eventually I, I got there. So I have, um, a hero's journey in which no one ever leaves a chair. Uh, so <laughs> Working on your voice, you can tell in these pieces. Uh, but the the first piece in this is an introduction in which you write about yourself. And I have to say that over the years, the writing that I've read of yours, I can tell it's yours, and you give us occasional glimpses of something that happened to you, or obviously if it's a restaurant review, it's food you tasted and you're telling us about it. But the closest we've gotten about you for years, I think, is your voice. Until now, until this (laughs) book and this collection. And I want to have another uh, reading here, page seven, when we talked about. All right. Um, And that's what happens when those of us who aren't from here get asked, what brought you to Minnesota? People always ask me why I, a fourth-generation child of New York City, razzle-dazzle, glamorous New York City, why I would move to Minnesota. I, I never give the real answer for a lot of reasons. 
Uh, mainly, I never gave the real answer because I thought no one would believe me. Um, and I spent a good chunk of my early childhood telling people things and being told that that is not true and that we don't believe you. Um, and, and I also kind of took the easy way out. I figured my role in this community was Champagne Barbie, bringing the fun and the wit and creating the illusion of a perfect life in my wine and cheese Barbie dream house, you know, as a, a living mascot for the good life. And people need dreams, I told myself. Um, but the real story, you know, it actually took me decades to understand that I hid my real self and my real story for the most tawdry and the most obvious reasons, because I was just ashamed of everything behind the pivot of the day that I got a dishwashing job at 13. Um, and you can't talk about that which you hide from yourself. Uh, and how can the story hunter hide her own story from herself? You know, it's actually pretty easy. People do it every day. And then I thought, but because people are reading this book, we'll get the real the real secret. And, and the real story goes like this. I didn't grow up in the New York City you see on TV where everything is red carpets and limousines. You know, the, the New York City I grew up in was uh, just domestic violence, florid domestic violence. Writing this intro was the hardest thing I've ever done. It was like gouging up um, parts of my soul with like a rusty grapefruit spoon. It was just, uh, it was, it was, but it was something that I have been in retrospect working on uh, for 30 years. And, um, and the reason that I wanted to kind of get this out there, and I, it has been very gratifying. I've been getting all of these Facebook messages and emails now. They're like, I lived that too. That was me also. Mm. Um, and the reason I wanted to do this was I, I think it's not fair to everybody in the world who, <laughs> who lives in this kind of universe of like domestic violence and child abuse and all. These, these things are, I don't want to say they're normal because it's not, but it's it's not uncommon. Um, my current therapist says that she knows you know a thousand people who have survived what I have survived. And you, you know, as a as a kid growing up, I you know you kind of look at the world and you're like, well, how is it that Oprah had horrible things happen to her, and then she's a brilliant star? And you know, Charles Dickens had terrible things happen to him, and then he's also a brilliant star. But when terrible things happen to me, I just cry a lot. <laughs> like, like, why is how could that be? And it uh, it took me until just just very recently to you know when I was writing this about a year ago, it took me until then to just be like, okay, let's uh, let's actually take a step back. Maybe the reason that you are able to interview everyone and, and people's kind of soul comes to meet your soul and you are able to have um, just these intense conversations with everyone. You know, it's Idris Elba or it's a, a Vietnamese chef who's never talked to anyone and you, you're able to have these conversations. That is coming because of, the, you know, the things that you survived, the 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 willingness to show up. Um, compassion is a thing that happens between two people who are kind of in equal, equal levels of suffering. It doesn't, compassion and empathy, like they don't come because somebody is up on a mountain peering down at somebody. Like it mm -hmm. comes from two people who are, uh, who have both suffered. And that's what 
and I just wanted to just put all that out there. Like I don't want to yeah. be champagne Barbie. Like it's a, it's a, it's a fake thing and I don't mm-hmm. like it. And it's, it creates isolation for everybody who thinks like, well, why did, why did Oprah get all the good stuff? It's like, that's just a weird way of, of being in the world and thinking in the world. And I just want to break it up and not be part of it anymore. And that issue of empathy when interviewing or writing about people. Uh, I think that I've come to think that's a really important part of a lot of journalism. And it's a different thing that you were saying there than sympathy. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, a connection that you have, even if you haven't necessarily gone through the same experience or haven't, uh, or, or haven't gone through any of the experiences of the person you're interviewing. I find that. Uh, but you need to have a, a, a human empathy for that connection for the time of the interview. And I, and I just wonder, is that – do you think it comes from, from that background? I do. I think that I really do think that when two people are talking, your soul kind of comes to the top. And I know that's a little woo woo, but it's like, I really do think that that's what people are doing when you're talking. You are having mm-hmm. um, a, a conversation. And if, uh, you know, we've all talked to someone who's like completely locked up and you don't have a connection with them, you can't yeah. talk to them. They're, they're deep inside themselves. But I think that for people who are, you know, available to talk to, in that way, like they respond to everything. They respond to everything you've thought and everything you've, you've been to through and they respond to the path that you've walked. And you just kind of tell when you're talking to someone that they have been through some things and you, you know, you just, that's what a real conversation is. And I'm in addition to being like a glass of water, (laughs) that's all the way up to the top. You know, it's like, I, I just, um, I connect with people because they meet you. That's, I guess, what I want to say is like people meet you with everything that you bring. And right. I think that this is a little bit like two bus drivers talking about the best way to bu- drive buses because this is right. what you do as well. <laughs> but uh, but it doesn't always happen. I'm here to tell you that there are plenty of people who sit across and you don't really have a connection because their PR person has given them five talking points and you know it's about the the event or the new thing or whatever and it's really hard. And And I use the term... Uh, it has to be a sort of instant rapport, and sometimes that doesn't happen. And you do your well, best. Well, I'm a little luckier than you because I you have get more, more time. time. Yeah, exactly. And, so, and I want to talk about that the full Dara treatment. Yes, and said, I also right? can just be very problematic and uh, just sit there and I'll just be like, <laughs> "Nothing is happening. This is not working for me. Like, we got to close it up." And then all of a sudden, everyone panics. And then, <laughs> have you done that? Have you oh, actually done that? Where you said, "I'm sorry, this is not working." Any number of times. Oh, I, I would mean, have loved to. Have, I have than... never done that, and I would have loved to. <laughs> oh, it's hard because you do, but you have to keep going because you. You have a job to get something from them. Yes. And I guess their job is sometimes not to reveal. But yours is different with, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a new chef or if it's, you mentioned uh, uh, different uh, actors you've talked to or whatever. They usually, they're not trying to, to toe a line, a party line, right? Well, no, they often are. I mean, they're often just trying to tell you the three things they want to tell you, and the three most wonderful things about their new restaurant. The three, yeah, you know, yeah, uh, or their new movie, or their new. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They want yeah. to tell you the six things they want to tell you, um, and if you, I mean, I, 
a little bit of being a street kid in New York City is that like I'm a I'm a fighter, like I'm a tough, uh-huh. I'm, I'm a little, yeah. uh, you know. And so if uh, if I think that that's partly why I've been you know success successful as I have been is that I will just start rattling the cage and be like, none of this is working. I won't have any of this. Like uh, you, yeah. you know. And then uh, what happens? What do they do? Because I've honestly never done. Well, because that. I'm they tempted now. Okay, this is yeah. great. <laughs> what happens at that point is that they have a sunk cost. Like they have okay. already, uh, yeah. you know, they've scheduled your time. They don't want to, you know, nose around and find a different person. They they just generally want to give you what you want, and then you're, you know, also like a used car dealer sitting on the side going like. Come on, you know you want to give me something I can use. Like what is, what are we wasted all our time here. And uh, yeah. what's it going to take to get you in this Pontiac today? Exactly. Like yeah. why are we wasting both our time? Like yeah. you know, just uh, give me something I can use here, anything. And then they laugh. And you know, mm-hmm. like I'm very good at making um, strange, powerful people laugh. Uh, and so <laughs> <laughs> it's a gift. And uh, you know, so uh, yeah, try it, man. Try mm-hmm. it. That's all I have yeah. to say. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mark that down. You mentioned there in the in the uh, passage this dishwashing job. You're oh, 13 yeah. years old. Oh yeah. Uh, and and tell us again as much as you would want to reveal about how you came to be in that position. And I and I can't help but think that at that impressionable age, this was a not only an introduction to the restaurant world, food kitchens, but also. As you write about it, it feels like it was almost a an escape, if not a salvation, for you. Oh yeah, it was the pivot. It was the pivot my whole life turned upon. It was uh, June the year before I turned fourteen, so I was a an older thirteen year old, and my dad had my dad was just a piece of work. Uh, he's been dead for twenty odd years. He was a a, a very wealthy um, economist, Wall Street guy who just loved. Ayn Rand and um, (laughs) Andrew Carnegie and I just he had a theory that you should be kicked out of the house when you were 13 Um, and you should then make it on the streets like Andrew Carnegie and uh, you know he he kicked me out of the house repeatedly like but the first time was when I was 13 and he his idea was he was going to drive me to the center of town and like scare me and tell me I was on my own and um uh, and also, this was because I cried a lot. This mm-hmm. was uh, imagine imagine a thirteen year old who cries a lot, uh, who who would mm-hmm. then be removed from the home. Anyway, uh, they dropped me off in the center of town, and I just was just like, oh, I guess this is it. Like I've read books like this. I'm just on my own now. And I just went to the nearest restaurant off the parking lot, and I was like, do you have any jobs? <laughs> <laughs> and this uh, wonderful chef uh, named Anna just, I think, took one look at me and was like, this is a problem I can f- I can fix today. And she was like, this is the dish pit. Uh, you know, this guy is going to show you how to use it. Six hours later, I was still washing dishes. She was like, you deserve a chicken. <laughs> so she, uh, One of the best meals of my life was just literally on a tree stump by the back door of this kitchen. And I had been... You know, I, I had found a place to live. I was getting, uh, <laughs> I had all kinds of, I had just crafted a new life for myself as an elder 13 year old. Uh, and, uh, you know, my dad came back at the end of the day and was just like, oh, I, you know, changed my mind. You learned your lesson and now you will, you know, submit. It was just like this, this chef was just like, 
had been a social worker and she just took him aside and, and read him the riot act. And I looked through the portholes of, you know, the little swinging restaurant doors and my whole life changed from that moment. And I, I worked for her for years and she, um, you know, she was just like, you're big and fancy. I could, you know, I can call six newspapers. Um, you know, what do you, I know what an abused child looks like. Like you're, you're now in jeopardy, like welcome to my world. And it was a revelation. It it literally changed everything for my entire family. And my dad moved out soon after that. Mm -hmm. I thought Anna was a, a, a great character in your book. And if she's a real person in your life, is she still in your life? No, she died oh. I think of the year after I was out of college, so she's been gone a long time. Yeah, she she kind of saved my life and uh I didn't I would say didn't much notice. Oh, not that she didn't notice, but it for mm-hmm. her it was just like all in a day's business. It was like we got to clean out the refrigerator and save that dishwasher. We got to, you know, <laughs> yeah. And and, and <laughs> go to school and become a writer. And, oh yeah. And she was not she said she wouldn't Oh yeah, count so this was, if you were if you became a cook. Yeah, so so 4 years later I was still working for her and um you know, I was very much like should I go to cooking school or should I go to college college? And she was just livid. She was like, "You're going to college. Like, there's not what you do. You're only 18 once. You can go to cooking school anytime." And then, yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, "Well, I still don't know. It seems like a lot of money um, to go to college." And she was like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna. I'm running the show. Like, I'm gonna say I never heard of you. Like, you're not gonna get a, a recommendation out of me. Re- Come reference. back in two years. <laughs> you know, if you <laughs> if you still want what you want." Uh, and so that's, yeah, that's how I ended up in Minnesota largely because Anna was like, nope, cooking school is foreclosed for you. Mm-hmm. So I, and I, you know, there's a guardian angel. I mean, she changed yeah. my life. Yeah. And that's how you came to be in Minnesota. Yes. Yeah. That is an amazing story. And yeah, and I couldn't be happier. You know, my next, yeah. uh, I, I feel like my next family was really Minnesota. You know, yeah. I, I have, was invited to this college, Loyola in New Orleans recently. And they're like, we want to talk to someone who's a, who's a public facing intellectual. I was like, Ooh, is that me? Like, that's oh, kind of, yeah. I'd love to go to New Orleans. Uh, and, but the more <laughs> I thought about it, it was like, you know what? I have written for many people and not many, you know, magazines and editors and, but I've had really one boss this whole time or one audience this whole time. And it is the people of the twin cities. Like the people of the twin cities keep a, a roof over my head. The people of Minnesota, um, have embraced this, uh, you know, yet another eccentric in the long line of eccentrics that we love, right? Yeah, and so yeah. I am one of those people. It's like, um, and so I have, I have been kind of employed by the state in a general, <laughs> you know, free market kind of sense for a really long time. And that's kind of my new family was Minnesota. And yes, I did come here because of F. Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> You say, I think you use the the word healing about Minnesota more than once in the book. It's been a healing place for you. Um, And it it had this, it loomed in your mind before you moved here, right? F. Scott Fitzgerald. uh, You said it was uh, in your mind, if I'm correct, you said it was a, a place of decent people. Yes. Um, New Yorkers don't know much, uh, but Minnesota <laughs> seemed, seemed like a, it just, everything about it just seemed nice. And the the evidence of this was really like, you had to go into a 17 year old's head, but I was, yeah. you know, it was F. Scott Fitzgerald, who I adored and Husker Du and yeah. the replacements and Babes in Toyland. And then 
Willa Cather and don't even ask me because I thought, you know, how I thought that she was connected to Minnesota because it was just a little bit of a, but flat, um, her books, exa- flat places. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I think, I, I think part of isn't it the song of the lark, part of it is from in Minnesota. I maybe think. that's what it was, yeah, but I yeah. just, I wanted to go to a place where the people were nice and that seems like very naive, but actually completely worked out. So <laughs> <laughs> good job, Minnesota. Your reputation uh, goes around the country and people are like, yeah, actually I would like to go somewhere nice because the not nice thing is not working for me. Mm-hmm. But once you're here, you're dealing with people in New York. You have editors oh, yeah. in New York, uh, Gourmet <laughs> Magazine. I want to uh, get to page 134 because I think this is a, a wonderful moment. And as someone, a New Jersey uh, New Jersey, New Jersey kid who's now here for 28 years. You do talk to people out east, and they, if they haven't been here, they have no conception necessarily of the geography. And you think they should, and they should, but they sometimes don't. Oh it's, yeah, you know, they never yeah. will. Don't even. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they when teach I was geography <laughs> all over the country about the country, but and all over the world about the uh, in this country, but that's another. But area. they're not paying attention. <laughs> so when I. Okay, so throughout my 20s, I basically had one foot in New York and one foot in uh, Minneapolis. And I was writing for this whole Condé Nast suite of magazines that don't exist anymore. And I was kind of going back and forth. And um, this is from a piece in City Pages, which I believe was the first thing really written about the Juicy Lucy in the the modern era. Uh, Good old 1998. Um, and you think it, that's the first time that Juicy Lucy was written about? Well, in a in a in a contemporary way. Okay, I mean, you know, and in a um, critical. We should talk about that after we. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so it, it kind of starts off, and I'm I'm having a, a I've gotten it's a just a cold open into a conversation <laughs> I'm having with a with an editor. <laughs> so where exactly in Michigan is Minnesota? Uh, <laughs> Living in Mindianapolis, is it difficult to get tickets to the big car race? Oh, I've been to Minnesota four or five times. I just love it. All those geysers, they just take your breath away. (laughs) And I thought I'd heard it all. East Coasters happily clueless about the world on the far side of Philadelphia. I was wrong. Witness today when an editor called me from New York to clarify some questions about where exactly the Twin Cities were. So we were a suburb of Chicago, and our main industry was Hormel. And there were a lot of feed lots, but how did Milwaukee and Fargo fit into it all? And it was, it's like the movie? I stammered something incoherent. Later, lying in the dark, headachy with a cold compress on my head, I imagined all the witty things I could have said. Yes, yes, of course. Think of the Twin Cities as a cluster of igloos by Wrigley Field. <laughs> We all look like Lonnie Anderson in a parka, and we spend our time shoveling handfuls of fire-roasted spam into our chapstick-caked maws. <laughs> the most important thing to remember is that the buildings you see are mostly underground. You see, the snow piles up so high, hundreds of feet in the winter, that building vertically is just about impossible. Some people do still call us the Twin Cities, but mostly... Subterranean cities. So come visit Minnesota, the only state that hasn't yet repealed prohibition. We're lucky the sun doesn't set all summer since it makes it easier to shoot the roving packs of timber wolves and polar bears <laughs> that daily raid our trash barrels. Primary industry, cod fishing, lace tatting, ice chipping. Come to the land that time forgot. 
When I pulled the cold compress off my brow, I realized my headache was still there, and the only possible cure was to take a couple of Juicy Lucy's and sleep it off. So, yeah. <laughs> We're talking with Dara Moskowitz Grumdahl here on NPR News about her new collection, A Reader, I called it. And you yeah. told me about it. It's a reader of some of her very best work over the last 25 years, The Essential Dear Dara in which Minnesota is a proud and loving character, or a loved character. Uh, I would say the main character. The main character. <laughs> the yeah, main. but here's what I've noticed, a, a thread in the people. I'm going to go through a list. Lynn Rosetto Casper, Kate Camillo, B.B. Zahara Bennett, Tua Zhuang, Sean Sherman, all prominent Minnesotans who are not from here originally, and, and a few others in the book, too. But all have made their mark here. All have uh, become famous through their work here. And I wonder, what can we take from that? Because the same could be said of you. One of the things that I love about Minnesota is that people choose to be here. Very few people you know, make it to 40 and didn't have some kind of a moment where they were like, think I could leave. I think there's a bus. Like, you know, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, Judy and so, Garland. exactly. And uh, everybody that is here after, let's say 40, you, we chose this. Like, mm-hmm. We like it. We, we want to wear sensible shoes in the winter. We don't, we want to have two months for just reading. Like we picked <laughs> this on purpose and we're so far from everything. Like, we have to deal with each other. We are so far from Chicago. Minneapolis to Chicago is as far, and I have mapped this out, is like mm-hmm. from London to Prague. Like, it is a mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. far distance, yeah. and yeah. we have, um, we must get along. We must choose each other. We mm-hmm. must, um, you know, make it work, and we have. And so... And these are people, that list and others in the book, have all done that. Yes. Not only have made it work, but have flourished and are known for what they're known for. And every person in this book has chosen Minnesota, and every person in this room has chosen Minnesota. Like I said, I mean, you do not get... You make a choice at some point to stay here. And that's one of the things I love about here. I mean, we have a shared set of values. People that live here, we care about nature um, very much. We care about food. We care about indoor things. Like we care, you know, we, yeah. we are a value driven people and we yeah. help each other get out of ditches in, you know, we have a, yeah. we have a number yeah. of qualities that are not the Florida man qualities. Like we have. <laughs> <laughs> So, Juicy Lucy's. Oh, Juicy Lucy's. All right. you, you think your, your article about them, your, your deeper dive was the first time. And then you said it, it's, it's, either, it's either Matt's bar, right? Or the 5'8". Right. Or the 5'8", yeah. The 5'8". And people ask you all the time, which has the better one? And you said that's, I can't even, that's like telling people Santa Claus doesn't exist, right? What did you just say on yeah. this? On this, um, yeah, I would. You know, I think there's clearly one answer, and everybody knows what it is. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and so the reason what happened was I wrote about this, and at the exact same moment that food television was launching, like literally the Food Network, and every, and people were just dying for uh, easy cheap content. content, and so all of these producers were flying out and and shooting. You know, they just you just drive twenty blocks up and down one avenue, and you have a show. So there was mm-hmm. just a, a year or two there, and now there are uh, 
Juicy Lucy is everywhere. They have yeah. uh, Buenos Aires Juicy Lucy restaurant, and I believe there's one in <laughs> really? New Jersey. <laughs> really? Wow. And, uh, right. it's, uh, and I'm sure they do them wrong. Um, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's nice for them. Uh, but we, <laughs> this, there was just this time where I went to do one of these Food Network things, and I was just standing out in front of the 5'8", and I wore this giant vintage you know, coat that was lined with fur because it was you know, 20 below or whatever. And I had this giant hat on and they wanted me to have this exterior shot and then something was going wrong. And I just remember looking up to this cottonwood tree and this eagle was looking down at me like, what is your damage? I was like, yeah, I got, I gotta say things have gone in a strange direction for baby here by the side of the road. And I, but you know, I love all of that. I love the adventure of it. I, you know, the, Every silly escapade that I have been on as a food writer, like, I just love them all. I love the human experience with that. Like, this is ridiculous, and I love every minute of it. And when it comes to ridiculous escapades, we've been along with you uh, a couple of times on day one of the Minnesota State yes. Fair when you eat all the new foods <laughs> that day. Uh, and uh, you don't seem to tire of that or the fair. You have a couple of pieces in here about the sky ride and uh, the corn of course, yes. And I've interviewed all of those the, things. the corn guy as well over the years. But you don't tire of it. A lot of us who have had to be around it are sort of like, um, you know, maybe someone else can do that this year, but not you. <laughs> I um, I find it's cheesy, but I I find the whole Great Minnesota Get Together thing to be accurate and true and interesting. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, it's such a microcosm of the world. I Do you know those Bruegel paintings where you look and there's all of these people at a fair mm-hmm. or something and there's a snowy ground and someone's playing making hockey. donuts and someone's yeah. playing hockey? Yeah. yeah. And I just find that that's what the state fair is to me. It's like a million stories happening in one kind of fishbowl. Like it, I just, I, I challenge myself every year to go find something new and interesting and, and different. And it's... Um, yeah, I I just have a certain, you know, into the fray curiosity that I in, I enjoy doing it. It's wacky. It's mm-hmm. it's extremely interesting to me. Yeah. <laughs> and it has been as since 1997, which was the first year that someone, you know, pressed some actual cash dollars into my hand and said, "Go find something new." And I just I ran to find something new and it was so fun and it's been it's been, uh, I don't know, a renewal of vows or something to yeah. me in Minnesota every year. It's like, it's just, oh, we're all still weird. Like, I love it. We're just do this forever. <laughs> I want to end with one. I'm going to ask you, we didn't go over this, but I'm going to hand this to you. This is a, a, a paragraph that I highlighted. If you could read that for us, because I think it's a nice, almost a benediction to end here. I've been successful in writing, I think, Because my wrestling and delving, it peeks out in the breaks between the words, like light seen through loosely woven fabric held up to the window. And what's the difference between humans and all the other stardust? The artifacts of that moral wrestling, among many other things. You've been listening to a recorded conversation with NPR News host Tom Cran and food writer Dara Moskowitz Grumdahl. They talked last week at an NPR event about Dara's new book. It's called The Essential Dear Dara Writings on Local Characters and Memorable Places. Be safe, everyone. I'll talk to you again Monday morning at 9.